We were just uh, listening to Rob Fleming, the education minister, giving us an update as far as the numbers of students back in classrooms, about 60,000 students returning, expecting the same for today. And uh, seems like things are going as smoothly as can be expected at this point. So we will keep an eye on that. Want to shift gears a little bit, though, and check in with a grade 3-4 Montessori teacher in New Westminster. And joining me on the line is Sarah Fox with a pretty interesting story of how she found herself teaching art. Sarah Fox, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for your interest in my students' work. Well, we found this story so interesting. It was in the local paper. So what Mm -hmm. happened? The the schools shut down. We know school, in-school learning was shut down. The art teacher was teaching uh, essential service students, uh, the children of essential service workers. So how did you end up teaching art? Well, I didn't have to. Um, I could have just said to the children, you know, you you know, this is not a strength for me, so let's focus on the things that I can do well. But my, my students love doing fine arts, and they've loved all the work they've done with our marvelous fine arts teacher. And so I thought, well, surely I can figure something out. And uh, I saw on Facebook maybe a picture, someone that dressed up their dog a Dark sound like a the girl with a pearl earring from Vermeer, and it made me so happy to see it. It was so funny and clever. I thought that's it. That's going to be the art project. And it took me about a week to figure out how to present it to them remotely, and and um, and then they stunned me with what they did with it. <laughs> so, what kinds of what kinds of art did they take, and what did they recreate? They chose the work of art to recreate. So they've made very different choices from Renoir, Maud Lewis. Some of them I'd never even heard of. I have to admit, some of the pictures I was not aware of. One girl did a recreation of um, Da Vinci's Last Supper. Um, Another girl did a a very witty recreation of um, Grant Wood's American Gothic. So they came up with, with the art themselves. I gave them some links to explore, but I think the parents um, helped them as well, which is is fantastic to to find art that they really loved. And and then they recreated them. They used their stuffed animals. They used things from around the kitchen. They used Lego. Thomas the Tank Engine makes an appearance in one. Um, a doll was taken outside and staged like a Renoir painting. Um, they just did incredible numbers of things with them. And then they took photos of that and put it into a slideshow so that we could all appreciate it. Isn't it, It's just fascinating looking at some of the, the ideas and what the students came up mm-hmm. with. And also it's nice to see, I think, we, we focus so much on the, on the so-called core subjects, but it's nice to see that art is still making, making an impression and, and students are still involved in it even during these very strange times. I think so. I think it is really, really important. And I think it's, um, it's certainly something that in, in New Westminster art and music and and theater and and dance are are really big programs within our high school. And I know that, you know, all schools like mine, my little elementary school, we're all very aware that we feed into this wonderful high school program. So I think we, I think we all take it pretty seriously. Like we know it's, it's important, but 
even to someone like myself, who's no fine arts specialist, um, this has been a big, big eye opener that the kids have this creativity in them and this wittiness and this joyfulness. And I think that's something that, that we need right now is the sheer joyfulness of, of seeing the world through the eyes of children, frankly. So will things change now that we've started some back-to-school learning mm-hmm. and will things change? Will you continue doing this, do you think, or, or is that it? This particular art challenge, I think, is done. I did a great artists one, European artists, very traditional, I suppose, mm-hmm. and then a Canadian one. Um, I think it might have 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 run its course. My thought for the children that are with me now in the classroom, in the well, in school in the mornings, is that we might. We might take it outside and use naturally found objects and try and do a a recreation outside. And I'm toying with the idea of maybe doing it collaboratively, but I'm not sure about that. So I'm just playing with it. Probably I'll just get the kids to help me figure it out. (laughs) And then with the kids who are still learning remotely, um, they can do the same thing. We can all take pictures of what what we do and create the same slideshow collaboratively, whether the children are... If they're with me at the school, then I take the photos myself. And if they're with me remotely, as it were, not with me, then they or their parents can take the photos and post them on our slideshow. All right. Well, it's a very inspiring project. And I, I agree with you that to what a great way to get kids outside and with their parents helping and coming up with these creative, these creations that then everybody can share. Uh, Sarah Fox, we will leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about it today. Thank you so much for your interest. I really appreciate it, Jill. Well, this is something that certainly has caused quite a debate in Delta and other places as well. But the hospice is located in Delta. It is a huge part of the community, very important to many community members. And many have concerns about the future of the Delta Hospice Society. And the president of the Delta Hospice Society has been defending her stance. Angelina Ireland was on with Linda Steele on her show just a few days ago. And this morning also joined Simi Sarah on Mornings with Simi to talk again about what is happening with the future of the hospice and why she is concerned about what is going to be happening for the, with the future of the hospice and why she is trying to make big changes there. Uh, we have a book burning going on here in British Columbia in terms of what palliative care is. That's a and bit much, though, isn't it? A bo- How is it a no. book burning when this is no. something that the majority of Canadians support? Like, that's a very oh, harsh it, statement. No, we're t- I'm talking about palliative care. And what I'm saying to you is that our esteemed minister refuses to even say the word palliative care. He only refers to hospice services. Now, we're, we're defending palliative care here for Canadians. All right. The minister she's referring to there is Health Minister Adrian Dix, who has been speaking out against this as well. He was on the Linda Steele show yesterday also. So today we wanted to continue the conversation. And joining me is Ian Payton, the B.C. Liberal MLA for Delta South. Ian Payton, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Uh, Thanks, Jill. What are your thoughts on hearing that exchange and knowing what's going on in this debate over the future of the Delta Hospice Society? Well, first of all, I'm I'm actually a member of the hospice. I've lived all 63 of my years on the same farm that I'm on in Delta. As you know, Jill, you're a, a Ladner girl. 
Um, I was actually part of helping to fundraise to get the hospice built uh, several years ago. So I think everybody in our community, you know, really pitched in. Um, the reason it's called the Irene Thomas is the Thomas family put in a great deal of money. Everybody's worked over the years with everything from golf tournaments to galas, etc., to raise money to make it such a great hospice and a great facility that it is today. It was never a faith-based hospice. That was never really ever brought up. But suddenly this new board has decided that um, they want to stack the deck and make sure that the membership and the board is made up of people that believe in the Christian faith only. And um, that's become a huge issue. Um, They've even... There's accounts of over 160 uh, memberships that have been sent back in the mail that said, well, we don't need you to vote in our upcoming uh, vote for the Constitution, and here's your $10 check back, your membership check. Uh, Angelina Ireland is saying that that's because they're already at capacity with 1,500 members and they can't, uh, they can't facilitate having any more members. Do you believe that? That's ridiculous. I mean, any club or society would probably welcome more members rather than less members. It's simply, I mean, I got the package in the mail about five days ago. This is where it all came up. I opened up this package and I looked at this amended constitution and it's simply a mail-in ballot. So it doesn't matter. Nobody has to meet in any sort of a room or a facility. It's uh, you check off the box whether you accept the new amended constitution or not and you mail it in. So I don't see what the problem is, whether there's a hundred uh, membership or 500 or 1500. Well, that's what I found odd because in the conversation this morning with Simi, Angelina Ireland also said that they had to cap it at 1500 because even at that number, they were going to be going out of Delta to find a facility where everybody could meet, which take COVID-19 off the table. You're not meeting with 1500 people right now anyway. And why would you ever have to do that? Exactly. I mean, there's no there's no club, there's no facility. I mean, I, I've been in, involved on in Delta City Council. There's no facilities here in Delta where, where anybody can meet with any more than 50 people. So it's strictly a mail-in ballot. And besides that, like coming up with amending a constitution with all this controversy in the middle of this pandemic where everybody's, you know, got a lot of stress in their lives, uh, I just don't understand the timing of it all. How do you think this happened and we got to this point in that I've talked to people in Delta who have been volunteers there for 20 years who are devastated by what's happening, the changing of the Constitution, the possible future of this. How did we get to the point where the board is suddenly filled with supporters of Angelina Ireland and we're in this position? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the the reason the minister, Dix, um, finally you know, out of frustration and said, look, this enough is enough. We can't have this board flip-flopping every six months, whether the board gets stacked with people that are either for made or against made in the hospice. So he laid down the law and said, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to give you funding of $1.5 million a year for one more year. This was back in February. So February 25th of 2021 is going to be it for the Delta hospice as far as um, funding from the provincial government. And Minister Dix has rightly said this is a a legality in Canada. It's a legality by the province of B.C. to introduce MAID into the hospice, and um, they will take over running the hospice in February of 2021. And uh, in the meantime, though, Angelina Ireland is digging in, saying they own the building that they are going to stay. Well... The building is actually owned, the land is owned by um, Fraser Health. The the building, of course, was built, and that's where I come in saying, well, you know, a lot of people worked very hard over the years to help get the building built, uh, fundraising, etc. 
So I'm certainly hoping that uh, the building will remain the same. All the, the good things that are in the building will remain the same. And uh, But it looks like the province will take over in February of 2021. And Fraser Health will run it. And, and he suggested there may be a, a committee of people together, like almost like a commission to kind of oversee the running of the hospice, uh, but not exactly a hospice board. And, and when it gets down to, to what appears to be the heart of this, uh, this issue, this disagreement, it's, uh, it's Ms. Ireland's vehement opposition to assisted dying made, which is legal in this country, has been legal from 2016. How do you work around that in that the majority of Canadians are in favour of this? In fact, many say it's still too prohibitive for many people who would like to have access to it. Well, Jill, I, I found it as a politician to be a very dicey subject, and I kind of tiptoed through this for the last year or so without making a whole lot of comment. But I realized, re- you know, just in the last six months that the vast majority, I mean, we're talking 95% of, I'm talking 500 likes on things that I've put on Twitter and Facebook of people that are like, good for you, Ian. We have to abide by the law. Made is important, uh, and it should be allowed in the hospice. And the main thing is that that we're inclusive, like even just in the last couple of days, you know, the province has come out and we've all bought into it with the racial stuff that's just happened, that we have to be inclusive about your culture, your ethnicity, your faith. I mean, my goodness, there's people working there that are of different faiths. There's people that donate money that are of different faiths. Just because you're not a Christian doesn't make you a good person that, that has the ability to either work um, or or donate or be a part of the the board of Delta Hospice. And so at this point, where do you think where do you see things standing? In that it it doesn't seem like you said it's it's moving down the way that the health authority would take over in February of 2021. Uh, if if Angelina Ireland is opposed to that and is going to fight that, where do you see things or how do you see things playing out? Well, I mean, I had a conversation with Minister Dix um, just a couple of days ago, and he's adamant that it's not going to play out in any other way than than the fact that uh, Fraser Health is going to take over running the Delta Hospice on February 25th of 2021. Um, I keep wondering, why would you, when Delta Hospice Board knows that there's only eight months left before the government takes over, why would they be doing this huge mail-out to amend their constitution that you have to be a Christian and believe in only Christian values to become a member or a board member. Like, why are they doing that at this point in time? They must think that they're going to somehow convince the government that it's a faith-based hospice, which doesn't have to adhere to made principles. Well, and I think that was even brought up in the interview this morning, Angelina Ireland saying that that is the the background of palliative care, that it is Christian-based and that it's it's always been that way. And she may have even said it's always been that way at the Delta Hospice Society, which simply isn't true. Well, Jill, you know, I'm a Christian myself, but when I see um, what they're trying to do with pushing people out just because they're of a different faith or a different ethnicity, it's just wrong. It's just wrong in my mind. And, um, you know, whether you believe in MAID or you don't believe in MAID, it became a law in Canada, and it has to be accepted by our hospices. And even my own father, who passed away in great deal of pain, went into a coma for two and a half weeks. You know, if this this was like 15 years ago, I mean, MAID might have been something we might have considered to put my poor father out of his misery.
Uh, because she, it almost seems like she's using uh, fear tactics as well. Because one of the quotes from her, from uh, this was from her interview with the Linda Steele show, was that she's gravely concerned that people will be forced into euthanizing themselves. Which I think anybody who's read about MAID or, or has read up on the rules around MAID, I mean, that's not what it's all about. No, definitely not. I mean, there's... <laughs> I mean, there's definitely nobody's being forced into euthanasia. I mean, it's just these are just crazy comments, just crazy comments. That's why there's so much support for this from the people of Delta. They love the hospice. They love the people that work there. They love the care that everybody gets there. And there's absolutely no need for this controversy. It's just really wrong. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. There have been a lot of questions when it comes to real estate, especially in Metro Vancouver, and what the COVID-19 pandemic might do when it comes to sales and prices of homes in the region. Well... We can report that since the middle of March, which seems like quite some time ago, since the middle of March, home prices have remained steady. And sales, well, let's talk about that too. And joining me on the line is Colette Gerber, the chair of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Colette, thank you so much for being with us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's always interesting to look at these numbers. So we're now taking a look. We've got a bit of a more, a more clear picture because it does. we have had that time since we uh, had the physical distancing brought in and things shut down because of the pandemic. So what are we looking at as far as the numbers for real estate? Well, the good news is real estate prices have remained stable. We are, uh, in the month of May, we had almost 1,500 sales, which is about 33% higher than April of this year. However, still 54% below our regular May average. But sales have slowly been increasing as uh, buyers and sellers are getting more comfortable with the current environment. Uh, so do you, do you put that to people are, are more comfortable with, uh, instead of open houses, you know, having appointments and are more comfortable with finding ways to, to keep the industry going, even with the restrictions because of the pandemic? Absolutely. Realtors have done a great job of embracing technology to help their buyers and sellers. There are things like virtual home tours, um, uh, something called Matterport, which is a way of displaying a property, documents being able to be signed online, sellers being told how they can take pictures of their property. So um, everyone's adapting and collaborating. It seems to be working very well. And when we look at the prices, because I think that's the one area where people did anticipate there would be a drop in sales in that even, you know, if people were in a position where they didn't have to sell or they didn't have to buy, they might wait out the pandemic or or wait it out for a little while to see how things were going. Uh, But I think people were anticipating perhaps more movement when it came to prices. What do you what do you put to what's what's kept the prices stable? Uh, What we have seen in the past. We had uh, a couple of years where prices came down, and then they kind of stabilized. Um, That was around summer of last year. And we have seen the number of sales and listings are, are pretty much in balance. And that's one of the factors that affects the stability in pricing. That's what keeps prices in check. 
And are you seeing any difference then if we're talking about detached homes or townhomes or, or condos? Um, in um, condos, there's um, a little bit more flexibility in pricing at the lower end. Uh, but overall, the market in all the areas is staying still pretty much stable. Uh, 0.3% increase over last month, so really nothing, nothing big. Uh, so if we're looking right now, uh, looking at the benchmark, so the benchmark price for all residential properties in Metro Vancouver today is uh, just north of $1,028,000. So that's not really unchanged from a month ago. Uh, and it's actually a bit higher, isn't it, than if we look at May of a year ago? That's right. A year ago, the benchmark price was just under 3% higher. And I know you, you've prefaced it by saying it was good news. It almost seemed like yeah. some people were hoping that there would be some some big drop in prices. I guess people wanting to get into the market. Obviously, people who are homeowners, property owners didn't want that. Uh, is this, in your mind, kind of the best case scenario at this point? Well, you know, when there is stability in the market, that's um, a factor that generates enthusiasm between buyers and sellers. And when you've got such unrest with uh, uh, the pandemic that we're currently experiencing and all the uncertainties around that, people look for stability and sellers, if they want to sell, are going to work with their realtors to find a price that will attract buyers. And with the 15% balanced market that we're currently experiencing, prices are definitely going to stay uh, stable for a while. Uh, and do you think people will take this news or like you said, uh, the realtors, we didn't go to essential service levels only in BC, but I, I think realtors were put in that group of, of, of staying open. They certainly didn't have to stop working. Uh, do you think that will, will bring people to confidence? Because it's this time of year, the spring, that we generally see that huge bump in listings. Do you think we'll generally see that coming back as people become more confident? Absolutely. We actually saw a 59% increase in listings in May over April of this year. Uh, Still below May of last year, still 37% below that. But with the big bump in listings, it definitely is an indicator that there is confidence uh, in the market. It never really went away. It was the pandemic that kind of put the brakes on real estate activity for a while um, until realtors were able to figure out how to continue doing business and keep their clients and the public safe. And do you think any of those measures will stay permanently as far as we've learned a better way to do things or a safer way to do things? Well, I I certainly think that uh, a number of those measures that realtors have currently embraced, they are going to continue using. And uh, there are some people who still like to do open houses. And at some point in the future, they'll be able to resume that. But I think we've got a a hybrid model forming where there will be more technology used and maybe not quite as much personal interaction, um, certainly at the beginning of the uh, buying or selling. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Colette, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. 
My pleasure. Thank you, Jill. Well, unfortunately, there are people who try to take advantage of others, especially during this ongoing pandemic. So we thought it would be good to check back in with Carla Lierd, the manager of community and public relations at the Better Business Bureau, to talk a little bit more about this. Carla, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me and hello to your listeners. Uh, Last time we were talking with you, we were focusing a lot on the puppy scam and we got that information out there. It seems, though, that people are turning to scams involving home improvement now. What's that all about? Right. So we actually did a full review of the reports that have come into Scam Tracker between March 1st and May 31st. And we found that home improvement scams um, were actually the scams that we received the most complaints about in terms of dollar figure with over $50,000 being reported in losses by consumers. So at the end of the day, it really came down to people falling for the the um, cash only deal strategy or, you know, people coming to them from their do- by their door randomly, um, you know, not expected saying, you know, hey, we have this once in a lifetime opportunity or a great chance for you to get a good deal on something that needs to be fixed in your home or maybe even paving because that seems to be something that's going on right now as well. And, you know, it's either a case of high upfront payment. In, in one instance, a victim paid $4,500 to get his paving, to repave his driveway, and it was a complete disaster once it was done. And the, 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 the business disappeared, and even the address that they gave them in Vancouver was fake. You know, so just things like that, that's what's really been causing a lot of problems. And so, you know, because of the pandemic, it creates even more chaos for a lot of consumers. You're not really sure where to turn to or even who to trust. And so that's what makes it even a more vulnerable, a more vulnerable situation for consumers. So to have that number between March and the end of May, losing more than $52,000 Canadians, is that a big number for one to be when we're looking at one specific type of scam? Yes, yes. Um, You know, the, the home improvement scam has always been on our top 10 radar. But in the short space of time, it is concerning because we don't usually see that amount in that in that time period, usually we would see something around twenty thousand um, dollars in that time frame for Canadians, and so to get that number does suggest that it's heightened. You know, scammers are capitalizing on the opportunity. If people are looking for things to do, ways to work on their home, ways to stay active, ways to you know still be involved and feel like they're actively doing something with their lives. And so, when an opportunity comes, even if the price seems a little high, you might feel like you know it's right in front of me. Why not utilize it? No. And so that's what's causing a lot of these scam reports to be coming in. And I would imagine people are are playing off on the idea, too, that so many people are out of work. And like you said, they're looking for things to do. Uh, People are looking for projects. If someone does show up and says, hey, I'm great at uh, installing driveways or I'm great at flooring or great at something. And uh, they might be playing to someone's emotions in that if you if you're able to, you might want to help somebody out and give them a job or hire them to do something around the house without maybe checking as much as you would otherwise. Exactly, because, you know, we are good-natured people. And so the, the, if you have the, the resources and an opportunity presents itself where you can support a business, I mean, you might even see it as admirable that the business is going door-to-door, still trying to keep, you know, their employees um, occupied and, 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 and employed. And so you might be receiving that as a way of them, you know, taking initiative and trying to get business. But at the same time, scammers are also known to be the types to go door-to-door. They might be turning 
up in unmarked vehicles. You have no form of identification to say that they are associated with a specific business. And so in those instances, as much as you want to support a business, that's not the best way to go about doing it. The best way is to get your references, get your different quotations, do your comparisons, because at the same time, you still want the best deal for yourself. And so whichever approach you take, whether it's to pick business A, B or C, you are you ultimately supporting a business in your province. So you want to make sure that wherever your money is going, you're supporting a business. Yes. But at the same time, you're getting the value for your money. So for the legitimate people, though, that might be doing that going door to door or or legitimately are in a neighborhood and and have leftover supplies or want to help people out, would you suggest then to to make sure you're doing those things as far as checking ID and doing a bit of background check on this person before you agree to it? Yes. So one of the things that we've always noticed about legitimate businesses is that they're going to be turning up in in marked vehicles. So you can clearly see what business they're representing. They will have sometimes branded shirts or, you know, um, branded tools and branded equipment. Some of them will will come with identification, uh, business cards. Um, You know, they'll be able to give you a quotation and a lot of them will also give you time to make up your mind. So, you know, that's the kind of... Um, ethical practices that they would be demonstrating. So that's what we want you to look out for. People who give you time to make your decision, they understand that, you know, as a consumer, you have the right and you deserve the right to get um, second opinions. Or if you ask for references, they should be able to provide that for you so you can check with other customers that they've had to see what their experience was like and get feedback on the quality of work that they've done. So that's what you really should be ultimately going for. Right. Someone shows up and says, uh, I have this great deal for you, but you have to decide right now or it's gone. Probably not the best deal to agree to. Yes, that's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, Last time you were on, we also talked about the puppy scam and we were talking about one in particular. But looking at the losses now, is it it's more than twenty one thousand dollars as well? Is that from March to the end of May also? Yes, uh, that's correct. And is that is that surprising to you or is that 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 does seem like a large number as well? Yes, it is a little surprising. In fact, when we did look at um, the numbers before we even got to the end of May, we were at 77 reports across Canada. And that is high for puppy scams, especially, you know, at this time of year, because we tend to see the spike at the end of the year when it's the holiday season and everyone's looking for that special addition to kick off the new year with their family. So that's when we would see that big spike. So to see that spike, no, we understand, you know, that um, consumers are seeing an opportunity to um, brighten their lives with a a new puppy and they have the time now to integrate the puppy into their home and, you know, really bring that puppy into the family. So, you know, a lot of different um, factors are, are, are in play, which is why this, we are seeing this spike as well as this um, high number of reported losses. So, you know, for us, it is concerning. And so that's why, again, we're always saying, you know, if you really are looking for a puppy, you need to make sure you see this puppy in person as best as possible. You know, go visit a shelter, um, reach out to your local breeders if you're looking for a specific kind of breed. You know, so that those are the little things that you want to be taking into consideration because at the end of the day, and I've been saying this, your puppy is a part of is going to be a part of your family. So you want to make sure you have an authentic connection. So whatever money you're spending, it must be going towards something that you can see and, you know, really enjoy when once you're done. And are you hopeful that as we are reopening and as we are getting into the phases of reopening and restarting the economy, we're going to see not as many of these scams? 
Well, you know, I do have a little concern about the employment scams in particular because of the fact that now that we're reopening, businesses are starting to come back, you know, the the jobs are going to start popping up again. And even before we've gotten to this stage, we're seeing the reports of employment scams already. So, you know, that's one thing I definitely want the public to be aware of as you try to, you know, stabilize your lives and build back your finances. Look out for employment scams. Be uh, be cautious, especially for jobs that seem to not ask you for an interview or jobs that are trying to, you know, just hire you on the spot without really checking to see if you have the right traits for the job. If the job seems to be trying to lure in people who are um, with, a fle- with flexible um, hours or they're trying to say things that, you know, it's a great opportunity for you, especially if you're a parent or if it doesn't require special training or doesn't require special licensing. These are things you definitely want to be careful of. So if it's a, uh, if it's a company that has a legitimate website and you have an opportunity to visit that website, check their career section just to make sure the job is actually there. Right now, though, let's bring Bring on Andrew Wilkinson, who is the leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. Andrew Wilkinson, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You were tweeting about this earlier today and this idea of reopening and a different way to reopen. What would you like to see happening as far as B.C. and the economy reopening? Well, we've written to the Premier today saying that our tourism industry, we all know, is in a pretty difficult spot trying to rustle up business locally, but not even sure what the terms are in terms of opening. Some uh, places are completely shut down for the indefinite future. Others seem to be opening. So we're asking for pretty clear criteria for tourism businesses to open, especially on a regional basis. And I'm just looking at the uh, Center for Disease Control website now, and there's one case in Vancouver Island, and that person's apparently in hospital. There are two in the Interior Health Authority, and the, one of them is in hospital. And we know there's quite a significantly larger caseload in uh, Fraser Health in Vancouver, and we obviously feel badly for those people. But for the people in the tourism industry in the Interior, the North, and Vancouver Island are getting a little itchy to say so. What's to stop us from opening when most of the caseload seems to be in area code 604 in the lower mainland? Is there a concern that by opening, though, even though people are being asked or advised to stay close to home, is there a concern that if you were to open up these areas that have very few, if any, cases, that people that might be asymptomatic could come to those communities and spread the virus? Well, exactly. You're on the right point there, Jill, in our uh, view, because we need the criteria from Dr. Henry and we need to hear from the, the provincial government as to how this is going to work. What are the criteria? Do the, does the case count have to go to zero in all of British Columbia and it will all open up on the same terms at the same time? That seems a little odd given how large British Columbia is. And as I said, with one case in Vancouver and that person's in hospital, Perhaps there are some other test positive people in Vancouver Island we don't know about, but what will the criteria be if a region has zero caseload? Can they open up their tourism business and get, get on with it? Do you get the sense that the owners of businesses and people that make their living in the tourism industry are encouraging this or open to this? Because it might be one thing on Vancouver Island, but I know the southern Gulf Islands, there's huge concern of people bringing the virus to that area, to the smaller communities. Exactly. And so those smaller communities need to know what the criteria are. Uh, If you're on, for instance, uh, Galliano Island, and you hear that things are ticking along on Salt Spring and all the ferries go there on the way to Galliano, 
then do you need to be concerned or not? And on the North Island, should they be able to open up normally? What are the rules? What are the criteria? Because right now, I think most of us understand the rules to be just wait, we'll tell you when the time comes. And it's very difficult to plan a tourism business for the next 10 weeks without knowing what any of the rules are. Uh, so would you suggest, so if we take a look at, say, restaurants, and restaurants have now been told if you can meet the criteria and if you've put up your COVID-19 plan, you can reopen at a, a certain capacity. Uh, are you suggesting, say, if you had a restaurant on Vancouver Island, you could open up at full capacity? Yeah, I think this is the big question. Should the same rules apply to a restaurant in downtown Vancouver as they do in Campbell River or Prince George, given the caseload? And I think the obvious question is, you know, BC is the size of Western Europe. Should we have the same rules for this enormous geographic area, even though if we were in Europe or even in the United States, where states are smaller, there'd be different rules in different places? Uh, so so what about the argument, though, that, that perhaps the reason that these parts of the province have zero cases is because, well, it's probably because the population is smaller, but also because of that physical distancing? Correct. And also a slower passage of people through them. So traditionally, northern BC has quite a lot of people going from the USA to Alaska, either on holidays or because they're moving back and forth between uh, southern states and Alaska. That hasn't happened this spring. So those folks will be saying along the Alaska Highway, well, there's hardly any traffic now. So is there any reason why we can't at least try to make a living by reopening? And at the same time, they'll be thinking, but do we want more traffic because people might come in with the illness? We need to know from Dr. Henry and the provincial government how to manage those expectations because we can't just tell people indefinitely, we have to wait till there are no cases whatsoever, zero in the province of British Columbia, and then we'll tell you a new set of rules. People are starting to say, and we're hearing this from all over the province, if there are no cases in my community and we have limited traffic through here, why do we have the same rules in Terrace or Chetwin that we have in Surrey or Vancouver? Uh, would there be a concern, though, that, say, if you use Terrace as the example, then if Terrace opens up, everybody flocks to Terrace? Well, I think that's a theoretical argument, but I don't think anybody in Terrace or you or I would believe that. Uh, maybe you could make an argument that, well, gee, if the Northern Island uh, relaxes its criteria, then people will flock there on holidays. I don't think people really plan their holidays in those terms. Um, everybody's got access to the information about where the caseload is. So if they're worried about exposure, they may be saying, well, gee, let's go to Interior Health Authority, Northern Health Authority, Vancouver Island. That's like 85% of the area of British Columbia has low caseloads. And so the folks operating in those areas say, We'd like to have more people come and visit us. We think it's safe. Tell us rules about whether we're going to have the same rules as the city of Vancouver. Uh, do you, there have been a call or there have been some calls for the provincial health officer for the province to release the numbers rather than by health authority, to release the numbers by community. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry has been very reluctant to do that, saying it could give, it could stigmatize some communities. It could give others a false sense of security. Would you like to see it released by community? Well, our health authorities are pretty big, and we're pretty much unique in the country having these enormous health authorities. I mean, the Interior Health Authority is about the size of France, and the Northern Health Authority is about the size of France and Germany put together. So at what level do we say, well, the City of Toronto is doing it by uh, municipality, and City of Toronto is about 5 million people, and we're still doing it by these enormous geographic areas. So, no, this isn't to 
push or browbeat Dr. Henry. It's to say, gee, we'd ask you to think about this because an awful lot of people we talk to all around the province are asking the same question. And we'd just like to know if you can develop criteria for opening up regions according to their caseload. But do you think it would be helpful for British Columbians to know community by community like they do in Ontario? I think that's a point you'd have to have a pretty thoughtful discussion about because obviously we don't want people getting the idea that, well, just take an example, uh, shall we say that there are no cases in Abbotsford and a number of cases in New Westminster. Do you want to have people tearing out Abbotsford to do their shopping? That's the sort of thing that Dr. Henry is legitimately concerned about. But I think given the sheer scale of the area of British Columbia, we could have a little more information like Kootenai versus Cranbrook versus Thompson versus Caribou Chilcotin. Those are all within the, the Interior Health Authority, but they're as big as substantial countries in Europe. And when we talk about Vancouver Island as well, like you said, uh, I think was it one case, uh, one person that's in hospital, there, then you bring in the ferries and there's a whole other issue with people being told, please don't ride the ferries unless it's an essential trip. But would you suggest, would, would it be okay then to do that, to open it up if it's okay to use the ferries? Or are you talking more about, say, opening up Vancouver Island, saying it's okay now to travel freely throughout the island? And that's where we need guidance from the provincial government with all its resources and from Dr. Henry as to the prudent way to do this. You can still get a ferry to Vancouver Island. You can still get a plane to Calgary. It's just the service is substantially reduced because people in British Columbia have been great about uh, getting this virus under control. And I guess it's one of those things where you say, well, gee, do we get a benefit from being successful when the case count is so low? And or do we carry on like this indefinitely? At what point, people start to ask, is it okay to open up more on an individual regional basis, rather than saying we're all going to be governed by the the highest density of illness in the province. All right. Well, we will wait and see if we get answers on that from the provincial health officer, from the health minister. Andrew Wilkinson, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Jill. And good to talk about it. I think it's an issue in a lot of people's minds.